It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 252 for July 24th, 2011. Recorded July 21st. Firefox, and to a lesser extent, Chrome, and a much lesser extent, Internet Explorer, offer plugins that extend browser functionality. Some of the plugins are designed to make searching faster and more complete. I use two of them that I find particularly useful, and I think you might too. I illustrate a search on the TechBiter Worldwide website for NYCMTA. That's the New York City Metropolitan Transit Authority. Uh, let me call your attention to four areas of the search result. First, there is an icon for Search GBY. That stands for Search Google Bing and Yahoo. It's a recent addition, and it allows me to switch instantly between search engines. Although the results are usually similar, sometimes there are important differences. There's also a marker for Stumble Upon, Google Plus Recommend, and a preview option that I no longer use. There is a Who Is lookup that I've pretty much stopped using. And there is Cool Preview. This icon appears when I hover the cursor over a link. I'll tell you more about all of these in just a moment. But let's start with Search GBY. To see the same search using one of the other search engines, just click the appropriate icon and you'll immediately be taken there. Or if you want a quick preview of all three search engines' results, use the Fast Preview option. You'll see the first several entries from all three search engines on a single page. So I can quickly examine the results from Google, from Bing, and from Yahoo. And then there's Stumble Upon, Recommend, and Preview. Stumble Upon is essentially a hybrid that's somewhere between a search engine and social media. It can be an enormous time sink, but it can also identify sites with similar information as identified by others. Clicking the link takes you to a Stumble Upon page where the selected website is discussed. Click the Google Plus Recommend, and you'll recommend the site to those who follow you on the new Google Facebook knockoff. Presumably, doing this causes the information to show up somewhere. I'm not sure exactly where. Clicking the magnifying glass icon turns on a preview function, and whenever you hover the cursor over a link, you see a small preview of what's on the site. To turn the feature off, just click the magnifying glass a second time. Now, as useful as that is, there's a better solution. Next, there's the Who Is Lookup. I considered this badly flawed, but the add-on did seem to have some promise. By default, clicking on the link, at least in Firefox 6, results in attempting to perform a Whois inquiry on the non-existent L.fo domain. Hmm, doesn't work. But once you provide an actual domain name, the add-on returns useful information. Because it's necessary to copy and paste the URL, it would be just as easy for me to use Central Ops instead. And I've talked about that one before. Or it's possible to use the World IP Address add-on to display basic Whois information, such as the IP address, location, and owner. If you need more than that, then Central Ops is the best option. 
I have removed the Whois domain, and I really can't recommend it. And I've saved the best for last. Cool Preview. Yeah, it really is cool. Click the Cool Preview icon, and you'll see a small image of the page the link goes to. The page preview appears quickly, very quickly. I presume the add-on is actively caching information from the instant your browser receives the result from the search engine. And you see this while the other search results remain in view. While the preview is open, you can move the mouse to hover over another link for a different preview, or move the mouse away from the preview screen and it'll close in just a few seconds, or click the X to close it. The timings are all adjustable in the add-ons interface. And if you click a link inside the preview window, the navigation works as expected. For example, I cool preview the MTA page and see that work is scheduled on the NQ and R trains. Because I plan to be on the R train later in the day, I click the link and without ever opening the New York City MTA site, I find that the N trains will run in both directions between DeKalb Avenue and 59th Street in Brooklyn, that the Coney Island bound N trains skip 30th Avenue, Broadway, 36th Avenue and 39th Avenue, that the R trains bound for 57th Street, 7th Avenue will skip Neck Road and Avenue U, and that the Bay Ridge bound Q trains are rerouted over the Manhattan Bridge from Canal Street to DeKalb Avenue. Tells me what I need to know since I'll be on the R train. I don't really care that it's going to skip Neck Road and Avenue U. I don't plan to use either of those stations. Cool Preview is a gem, and if you spend very much time using search engines, I think you'll find that one indispensable. Adobe's Creative Suite 3 included Audition, a high-end audio editing application. Audition was missing in CS4. It continued to be missing in CS5, but it has made a triumphant return in CS5.5. Not only is it back, but now it's an application that works on the Mac. Anybody who works with audio files should be thanking St. Foley. Let me start with a couple of notes and explanations. First, Adobe Audition was formerly known as Centrillium Software's Cool Edit Pro. It became part of Adobe's Creative Suite in version CS3, and it features both a multi-track, non-destructive mix and edit environment and a destructive waveform editing view. When Adobe dropped Audition from CS4 and replaced it with the much more modest sound booth, I concluded that the CS4 upgrade wasn't ready to ship and that it would reappear later. When it didn't come back in CS5, I became concerned. The rewrite is now complete, and Audition CS5.5 rocks, literally. Number two, St. Foley? All right, that's a tongue-in-cheek reference to Jack Foley. He's the developer of many sound effect techniques that are used in filmmaking. Today's Foley artists are the people who add believable sounds to movies and television shows. If you think that sounds are unimportant, just try watching a movie that has a bad soundtrack. I said a couple of notes, and here's a bonus note, number three. The July 3rd podcast was created using Audition CS 5.5. Although this application has been on my desktop system since late April, 
I hadn't used it to create a podcast for several reasons that, rather illogically, concerned me. The file format is different, for one thing. The interface is considerably different. And all of those changes taken together made me more than slightly nervous. Those fears have been banished. In the old days, everything you heard on radio was live. Then came transcriptions on disc. Wire recorders were developed during the 1940s and tape in the 1950s. And that was pretty much the standard until around 2000 when digital recording started to be the norm. Although everybody on radio and television still refers to tape when they talk about interviews. You know, such and so wouldn't agree to be interviewed on tape. Well, who has tape anymore? Editing used to involve physically cutting tape and sticking it back together with a special kind of tape. Or with just regular scotch tape if you ran out of the special stuff. But that created a real mess after a couple of weeks. In the 1960s at WCOL, we had a crude punch-in capability. That ability allowed us to perform basic electronic splices. But today, that all seems hopelessly archaic. You'll see an image on the TechBiter Worldwide website that is one of the TechBiter Worldwide programs. Audio is in the two horizontal sections you'll see. The top section holds the open, close, and bumpers, those little musical interludes you hear. The bottom section is my voice track. The multi-track view can easily handle many tracks. There are just two in the image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. One is mono, one is stereo. But TechBiter actually uses two additional tracks as needed, and other productions could have many, many tracks. As with Adobe's video production tools, Audition brings to the desktop a vast, rich editing environment that would once have cost tens of thousands of dollars to create. Another image you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website shows a small portion of a segment of the program from about 5 minutes and 30 seconds to about 7 minutes on the voice track. The view at the top shows the amplitude or volume of the signal, but it's the part at the bottom that's the true breakthrough. The bottom section shows frequency distribution, lower frequencies at the bottom, higher frequencies logically at the top, versus amplitude. Yellow is loud, purple is quiet, black is silent. The lower section actually allows us to see noise. And tools that are very much like those provided in Photoshop allow us to select the noise and heal it. This capability was introduced in Adobe Sound Booth, and its presence in Audition should be treated as an important event in the history of audio editing. I have included on the website, but will not be including here in the podcast, three audio samples. One is an original recording. The next is the same recording with hard limiting added. And the third is that recording with hard limiting and then noise reduction applied. This kind of audio control is amazing. But I could say the Audition interface is somewhat complex. I could also say that the Empire State Building is big. And you might reasonably be expected to reply, yeah, well... Complex and complicated, though, are two different things. Just as professional cameras are complex, so are professional audio editing applications such as Audition. A professional audio engineer will not consider the interface complicated, though, because it'll look a lot like what's available in a high-end editing suite. 
But for those who don't edit audio professionally, the interface will be both complex and complicated, and unfortunately, there are few resources available to help those of us who aren't audio professionals grasp an understanding of the overall application. As I work with Audition CS 5.5, I continue to be impressed by what Adobe has managed to create. Audition started as CoolEdit, and the original application's roots were visible through Audition 3. With Audition CS 5.5, Adobe has rewritten the application from the ground up. That means a few familiar interface features are missing or changed, but it also means that the overall application is far more robust and that it has been fully integrated into the CS family. So maybe considering what's new makes sense. Audition now has native Mac OS support. CoolEdit was a Windows-only application. So until now, Audition has been a Windows-only application. Now Mac users can have some fun, too. Audition CS 5.5 has a high-performance audio engine. What this means is that users can continue working on a file while another part of the file is still rendering. And it means that processes that used to take 30 seconds to a minute now complete in 15 seconds or less. There is no limit on the number of tracks you may have in the multi-track view. Whatever you need, Audition can give it to you. Well, maybe there would be some limitations. Those would be the memory available on your computer. Powerful sweetening and restoration tools make it possible to fix audio problems. These tools include the Adaptive Noise Reduction Tool, the Declicker Tool, the Audio Healing Paintbrush, which is a real wow when it comes to perfecting production audio. An astounding analog-modeled multiband compressor allows you to adjust loudness on a per-track basis. So, Audition CS 5.5 is in use here on TechBiter Worldwide. And the bottom line is five cats. Audio professionals will love the latest Audition. Despite the lack of complete documentation and tutorials, Audition CS 5.5 is what audio professionals have been waiting for. I'm waiting with anticipation for the time when resources are available to unlock the powerful features for the rest of us through documentation. For more information, you can visit the Adobe Audition website. You'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. I'm used to receiving scam-spam messages from people who claim to be PayPal. Until recently, these messages were sent to addresses that I do not use for PayPal. But now, one of the scammer-spammers has guessed my PayPal address. I'm actually surprised that that hasn't happened previously because my PayPal address is extremely easy to guess. In fact, I'll even tell you what it is, paypal at blind.com. But even though they got the right address, it took me less than three seconds to identify the message as a fraud. So let's look at what the idiots still can't do, which is convince me that they're PayPal. The primary giveaway, of course, is that my name is nowhere to be found on the message. And I know that any legitimate message from PayPal will address me by name and that it will use the exact spelling that I provided to PayPal. When I hover my mouse over the PayPal.com link, I can see that it really goes to Yin Net. The rest of the link is designed to convince the clueless that it's really going to a PayPal address, 
The rest of the URL is security, security, English, PayPal, CGI bin. The domain yinyatan.net is registered at GoDaddy, and it's hosted by Bluehost. Because Bluehost is an honorable and reliable business, I have already advised them. The name Yin Yutan suggests that this is probably of Asian origin, and definitely the person who wrote the email doesn't have a particularly good understanding of the English language. So that's gigantic clue number two. For example, attention, exclamation point, your PayPal account was limited, exclamation point. Well, that's too many exclamation points. Beyond that, we need a past perfect verb here. Has been limited, not just was limited. And here's one. As part of our security measures, we regularly check the work of the screen PayPal. I really don't have any idea what this person is trying to say. My guess is that it's some sort of automatic translation program at work. Think you that this structure English type would be used PayPal by? Not, no, probably, uh-uh. This is the last reminder to log into PayPal, comma, as soon as possible. What's up with that comma? Then, of course, they apologize for any inconvenience. And at the end of the sentence, there is a space and then two periods. Now, do you really think that PayPal's lawyers would miss that space between the final word of the sentence and the period? And would they allow a second extraneous period? I don't think so. But I didn't really need to look at any of that stuff. It was obvious, as I said, within just a few seconds, that this was not a message from PayPal. It's easy to spot these frauds. In short circuits, something old returns as new to TechBiter Worldwide. When Google Voice first became available, I added a widget to the site so that readers and listeners could call. Later, something went wrong with the widget and I never replaced it. But now it's back. On the contact page, you'll find an option and you'll see it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The one on this week's program works just exactly the way the one works on the contact page. If you want to place a call to TechBiter Worldwide, here's how it works. You click the Call Me button. Then you fill in your name. You can use your real name if you want, or you can use an alias. I don't care. Fill in your phone number so that Google Voice can connect the call. In other words, Google Voice is going to call you and then connect to me. That's the way it works. So they need your phone number. Now, if you want to keep me from finding out what your phone number is, that's fine. Click the Keep Number Private checkbox. Then click Connect. Almost immediately, your phone will ring, and then Google Voice will offer to make the connection. Assuming you want to continue, press 1 on your phone, and the call will be connected. I believe this should work anywhere in the United States or Canada, and there is no charge for the call. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, I'll show you what I see. I made two calls to myself, one in which I included my name and my phone number, and one in which I didn't. And you can see that if I choose to remain anonymous, I do remain anonymous. <laughs> Microsoft filed a civil suit in mid-March against the operators of the Rustock botnet. The trouble with that is that currently nobody knows who was behind it, so the defendant is simply listed as John Doe. Chances are fairly good that John Doe will not step forward to identify himself, so now Microsoft is trying something else. 
Actually, Rustock is no longer in operation, but Microsoft still wants to identify the people who set it up and is now offering a quarter of a million dollars as a reward for information that leads to the capture and conviction of those responsible. Rustock was generally believed to have originated in Russia, and Microsoft is advertising in Russian-language newspapers and providing an email address that anyone with information can use to report what they know. With this major spammer shut down, spam levels are about the same as they were three years ago. That's better, but there's still far too much trash. During the years that Rustock operated, it was a major source of both spam and annoyance. If captured, the operators could face charges for counterfeit advertisements, copyright violations, and more. Microsoft attorney Richard Boscovich says that Microsoft already has some evidence and that the company will continue to follow the case. Even though the command and control center is gone, millions of computers worldwide continue to be infected with the Rostock application. Adobe started selling the Photoshop Elements Editor via the Mac Apps Store this week, but if you're thinking about buying that version, I have a better idea for you. There's no question that the editor is a very cool application. It is aimed at the non-professional community and gives users access to powerful features that are easy to use. It's just that there's a better way to get it. For $80, you can buy the Mac Apps Store version. The editor is exactly the same as in the full $100 Photoshop Elements 9 application for the Mac. All that's missing is the photo organizer function, which is handled well by iPhoto. Photoshop Elements brings much of the power of Photoshop without all of the complicated settings, about 50 tools and hundreds of features that include spot healing, panorama merge, and guided edits. After using the guided edits function, which I've described in previous programs, the user then has access to the layers that the application created and can make additional modifications as required. In other words, the application doesn't box you in. But, as I said, there's a better idea, and here it is. If you buy the editor only at the Mac Apps Store, you'll pay $80. But for $85, you get the full Photoshop Elements application at B&H Photo. If you're a legitimate student, you can buy it for $67 from stores such as Academic Superstore. Or you can pay $80 with free shipping. That's the same price as the online price at the Mac App Store for just the editor. And buy Photoshop Elements 9, the full application, with the image organizer from Newegg. Chances are Adobe doesn't care much whether you buy from the Mac Apps Store or buy it from a store that provides the full version. If convenience and speed are important to you and you're okay with using iPhoto as your organizer, then the App Store version is fine. But if you want full value and you can wait a few days for the package to arrive, definitely go for the full version. Either way, I think you get a bargain. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.